chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 22 this morning as our scripture. And if you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. It looks exactly like this. And it is on page 917 where we will be this morning. On page 917. And we're taking a snapshot this morning as the persecutor Saul is becoming the Apostle Paul. And this is a familiar passage for many of you when, uh, when his eyes are opened, so to speak. Chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word this morning. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul and the dramatic way in which you saved him from becoming a persecutor to becoming one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Father, it's testimony of the power of your word and your Holy Spirit working in the lives of people. And as we said under the teaching of your word this morning, we pray that same Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts, moving us and prompting us in this area of discipleship, of being more like Christ, and recognizing the centrality of the local church in your role of advancing your kingdom here on earth. We thank you for our speaker this morning who will be sharing from the word and challenging us. And in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. College Park Church has always been special to Gray Road, having supplied uh, pulpit, having supported us in prayer, and having been a special friend and encouragement. As a matter of fact, our guest speaker this morning is Brad Merchant, and Brad shared with me before Sunday school this morning that uh, Gray Road is on the prayer list for them to pray for on churches two weeks from now, just as we pray for other evangelical churches in this area College Park is praying for Gray Road. Pastor Brad is the Pastor of Leadership Development at College Park, and he is also on the leadership team of the Gospel Coalition here in Indianapolis. He is experienced in church planting and in training those who are involved in church planting. He is an active blogger, has an active blogging ministry, and he also is the author of the book, uh, Mentoring Like Jesus. So it's our pleasure, Pastor Brad, to welcome you this morning 
here at Gray Road as we wrap up this year's missions conference. Lord bless you. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. I must admit, I hear about you guys all the time. Everybody talks about Gray Road Baptist and uh, didn't really know what the church looked like. And now I'm here. And you guys have a bookstore, which means I'm now transferring my membership to Gray Road Baptist. <laughs> Don't tell our lead pastor that because he signs my checks. But it's good to be here with you, um, especially in these two weeks as we consider world evangelism, but also local evangelism. And what is our part in God's global but also local mission? You know, several years ago, I was invited uh, to speak to a group of about 75 kindergartners on the resurrection. Scary. And uh, I began speaking and, and talking about how, you know, Jesus lived the life that we could not, that he died the death that we deserved and was placed in the grave but was raised from the dead on the third day. And now we can place our faith in Jesus' finished work, right? And something I've learned over the years of working with kids, and many of you that serve in the children's ministry here will know this to be true, is that kids ask the best theological questions. A little girl stood up at the end as I was, I was asking, you know, any questions today? And, and um, you know, one kid was like, where's the lollipop? And one kid's like, when I'm getting lunch? And, and this one girl stood up and real serious look on her face. And she said, Reverend, which I love that, if Jesus' work is finished, is he bored? <laughs> then I just prayed and ran away. That's what I did. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because essentially what she's asking is a question that I bet many of us are asking, and maybe we don't even know that we're asking it, and it is this. How is Jesus at work today? How is Jesus at work today? How is Jesus at work in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my family? And yes, as we've been together these last two weeks, the world. How is Jesus at work today? To answer this, we turn to a portion of Scripture that Jim just read before us, Acts chapter 9, where we find an individual, a man named Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. And as we follow his life, what we're going to find this morning are three ways that Jesus was at work then, and yes, three ways Jesus is at work Today, So if you have a cop copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with us, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, the natural question we might ask, of course, is who is this man named Saul? He first appears in Acts chapter 7 during the stoning of Stephen, a follower of Jesus. And it is there that we find him holding the coats of the executioners while nodding his head in approval as they stone Stephen. Acts chapter 8 tells us that he was, quote, ravaging the church, going door to door, binding up Christians and putting them in prison. And, and now in verse 1, 
we find here Saul is still, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples. You know what that means, right? In other words, he can hardly speak without something hostile coming out of his mouth towards Christians. Have you met anyone like that? This is a man that wants to see the church destroyed, discredited, and the gospel denied. To put it plainly, he wants Christianity dead. So he goes to the high priest to ask for, quote, the letters to the synagogue. These letters would grant him access and authority from Jerusalem to bring out these Christians, bind them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, punishment, and even, in some cases, death. Saul is exactly the kind of person Stephen described at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 7. He is stiff-necked, uncircumcised at heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit, and hell-bent on destroying the church and eradicating Jesus Christ. It would be hard, we would be hard-pressed, I think, to find someone in a worse spiritual state than Saul of Tarsus. But notice this man, as he is heading to Damascus to persecute Christians, something quite unique happens. Verse 3. Text says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And it is this scene that reveals to us the first way in which Jesus is at work then and even today, which is this. Jesus is sovereignly pursuing sinners. Jesus is sovereignly pursuing sinners. In Acts chapter 26, Saul, then Paul, stands before King Agrippa and recounts what happened on this very day, beginning in verse 13, he says, At midday I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I had heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then notice what he adds. This isn't in the Acts 9 account. He says this. He says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Hard for you to kick against the goats. What does this mean? Well, goats were typically long, slender pieces of tim timber with a pointy edge. A farmer would typically use the sharp end of the goad to urge a stubborn ox into motion, pricking it to its purpose. In other words, what, what, what Paul's saying is that God had used particular things to draw Saul to himself. So here's the question. What was God using to sovereignly pursue Saul? And consequently, what does God sovereignly use to pursue us? Well, if you're taking notes, jot these three things down real fast. Three things God uses to pursue people. Number one, Christians. Saul had many interactions with followers of Jesus throughout his life, no doubt. 
but perhaps none more impactful than Stephen. As Saul stood at the execution of Stephen, he heard him proclaim the good news of Jesus, exhibit the love of Jesus, and then extend the love of Jesus as he cried out with his dying breath, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. God was using Stephen's testimony and personal witness to display his character and sovereignly pursue Saul. I love what D.L. Moody once said. He said, famously said, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible. The other 99 will read the Christian. Every Christian is a sermon. Do you know that? Every Christian is a sermon, proclaiming who Jesus is and what he is like. The question is, how good of a sermon is your life preaching? Do people experience you, maybe at work or home in the neighborhood, and, and do they walk away and think there is something about them that is different and they're drawn in? Or do people experience you and walk away saying, I hope I never see that person again? What kind of sermon is your life preaching? God sovereignly pursued Saul and sovereignly pursues people today through the testimony and proclamation of the gospel through the life by Christians. Here are things God uses to pursue people. First, Christians. Secondly, the conscience. The conscience. Romans 2 tells us that all human beings have a conscience, the law of God written upon their hearts. And this conscience works like an internal smoke detector, alerting us of when we do right and when we do wrong. This is why when you do something you know to be wrong, maybe a lie, maybe speaking harshly or looking at something you shouldn't, there's something internally that accuses you of doing wrong and thus you feel guilty. Now, can you imagine being Saul? A man who relentlessly imprisoned, punished, and even killed Christians, all the while suppressing, most likely, nagging questions and guilt that would have plagued him. You imagine that. As he laid his head down to sleep each night, he would maybe only wonder or think about all of the Christians he had helped in prison to kill. And maybe he would ask himself questions like, could I be wrong about Jesus? And yet again and again, he suppressed his guilt and nagging questions in his mind by his own sin and hardness of heart. And maybe some of you can relate this morning. Maybe you carry guilt from the wrong things you've done in the past into this place. You've been trying to suppress your guilt instead of dealing with it. Or maybe you've been wondering in the back of your mind if Jesus is really who he says he is. Dear friend, God, God is revealing your guilt and doubts to you to lead you to Jesus. He wants you to bring all of your doubts, all of your guilt, all of your shame to Jesus by faith, you turning from your sins, placing all of your trust on Jesus so that you can hear the words you've always wanted to hear. You are forgiven. What does God use to pursue us? He uses Christians. Secondly, conscience. Third, finally, he uses circumstances. Acts 9 can be summarized in this way. Saul was going his way until he met the way. And when he did, he was brought to his knees, made blind, and had to be led by hand to Damascus. 
humbled. God had put Saul in a circumstance to bring him to the end of himself. And that is exactly what's happening with some of you. Maybe it's a loss of your job. Maybe it's a physical ability you no longer have. Maybe it's that team or group at school you got denied entry into. Whatever it may be, you need to know this. God often takes what we think we need to show us that he is all we need. Some of you are here this morning and you have been brought to your face recently by circumstances. And the pain you feel is so real and you are tempted to believe that God is punishing you. But dear friend, the gospel tells us that God is not punishing you because he punished his son in your place. In other words, what God is trying to do now is not trying to pay you back, but bring you back. See, it's not retribution, but restoration God is after. So I have to ask, have you come to the realization that you need something, namely someone beyond yourself? Maybe you're here today and for the first time you need to place your faith in Jesus. And he's been using circumstances all around you to lead you to this day. Would you turn from your sins and trust Christ by faith? Jesus was sovereignly pursuing Saul and he's still sovereignly pursuing sinners like you and me in order that we might experience his love. Back to Acts 9, verse 10. The story continues on. He says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, this what's happening here? Take a pause. Clear command from God. Go here, find Saul of Tarsus. Pretty easy to understand, right? Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. If I ever had to write a commentary on Acts 9, for verse 13 and 14, here's what I would write. God gives a clear command to Ananias. Ananias seemingly says, Are you kidding me? God, he kills Christians. And in case you haven't forgotten, I am one. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, don't you love that? Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. This shows us the second way in which Jesus is at work then and even now, which is this. Jesus is radically transforming lives. 
Jesus is radically transforming lives. Ananias had heard the stories of Saul's attempts and desires to destroy Christians, no doubt, and now he is being told by Jesus himself to go and meet this man face to face. There is no doubt that if we were to ask Ananias, who is the least likely person to be converted? Saul of Tarsus would have come to his mind. So opposed and hard-hearted was Saul that Ananias thought Jesus had made a mistake by calling him to go meet him. And yet Jesus responds to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, reflecting on this verse once writ, wrote, he said, he, we may expect the Lord to arrest the chief one among his enemies. We may expect it. Because... It will glorify him more than 10,000 angels singing his praise. And in this moment, Ananias was being reminded of what we are all prone to forget, which is this. No one, anywhere, under any circumstances, is outside the reach of the gospel. I'm going to say that again because some of us need to hear that this morning. No one, turn to your neighbor and say no one. No one, anywhere, under any circumstances, is outside the reach of the gospel. Do you guys believe that? But if we are honest, we don't always believe that, do we? Sure, Jesus is radically changing the lives of people out there, but the lives of the other people that I know that are so hard-hearted so opposed to the gospel, there's no way Jesus can save them. One of these hard-hearted, impossible-to-be-converted people was a man named Luke Short. Luke was an 18-year-old. He was a teenager who, would, who refused to believe in God. But on one occasion, he visited a church with his family where John Flavel, a 17th-century Puritan, happened to be preaching. Towards the end of the sermon, John Flavel ended his sermon by repeating this line. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. And close the sermon. Well, Luke walked out of church the same way he came in. An unbeliever, hard-hearted, wanting nothing to do with Jesus. Eighty-two years passed by. And Luke found himself on his deathbed reflecting on his life, when all of a sudden, as he was thinking back upon his life, a phrase was lodged into his mind. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. And at the ripe age of 100, Luke placed his faith in Jesus and was gloriously converted. Question. Is there anybody too far gone? If you think the answer is yes, and you claim to be a Christian, take a look in the mirror. There is no one too far gone. It is no wonder why John Flavel wrote these words. One word of God can do more than 10,000 words of man. One word. 
Listen, the lives of Saul, of Luke Short, and every Christian in this room today are walking testimonies to these two powerful words. Jesus can. Jesus can. Say it with me. Count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus can. When I personally am tempted to believe the lie that someone in my life, maybe in my family, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, is too far gone, I preach this simple truth to my heart. No, 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 no. Jesus can. And I remind myself that there is no one too far gone from the grace of God. In fact, some of us need to practice that this week because you're going to be doing life with people that you have tricked yourself into believing. I don't need to share the gospel with this person because they are impossible to reach with it. And you need to remind yourself as you walk out of this church today, no, 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 Jesus can. And let that funnel faith into your heart to share the glorious news of the gospel with people around you. So here's what I want to do. I want to practice it together. You guys down for this? We're going to have a counseling session. It's going to be totally free for me. And uh, we're going to do a couple case studies. You guys ready? Okay, about three of us are ready. Are you guys ready? All right, here's the case study. I'm going to give you some scenarios. And then I need you to preach the truth Jesus can to my heart. Okay. I had a conversation with a family member today, and it went totally south. They always have a reason for not believing in Jesus, and I feel so inadequate. Who could ever get through to them? Jesus. Wow, that's good. That's good. You guys come up with that on your own? That's good. Here's another one. My child is breaking my heart. They continue to live in rebellion against God. And now they want nothing to do with me. Who could ever change their heart? Jesus. My parents are so antagonistic towards the gospel that they can hardly ever let me bring up a word about Jesus. Who could ever convince them about the truth? Jesus. You guys getting sick of doing this yet? The moment you get sick of doing it is the moment you need to do it again. Because our hearts often siphon faith from them and tell us and cause us to believe the lies of the devil that someone is too far gone. And can we be honest? That maybe for some of you here today, what you need to hear this morning is that maybe the reason you haven't shared the gospel with certain people in your life isn't because you're scared to do so, but because you have tricked yourself into believing that Jesus can't penetrate their darkness. Friend, whenever you are tempted to believe that, preach the truth Jesus can to your heart. Share the gospel in faith, remembering that like Saul and men like Luke Short, and yes, even yourself, God can do the impossible. Amen? Back to Acts 9. The narrative continues. Verse 19 says, In taking food, Saul, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Notice verse 20. 
immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Those before him were so shocked that Saul, the hater of Jesus, is now Saul, the proclaimer of Jesus. And it is this now converted Saul that God would use to plant more than 14 churches, write over half of the New Testament, and bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which means if it weren't for Paul, you and I wouldn't be here. And friends, this reveals the third way in which Jesus is at work today, and it is this. Jesus is graciously using the church. Jesus is graciously using the church. Question. Why did Jesus redeem Saul? Why? Look back at verse 15. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus saved Paul to proclaim the gospel so that he, Jesus, would receive the praise of all peoples. So as we were singing about this morning. Why does this matter? Because our lives, all of our lives, are meant to be conduits, not cul-de-sacs of the gospel. Conduits, not cul-de-sacs of the gospel. In other words, God reaches the world through ordinary people, like you and me, living and sharing the extraordinary gospel with people we've embraced and met. In other words, God uses the church to be his primary means for reaching the world. And this ought to blow your mind. You know, I've had the opportunity to do countless weddings over the last decade or so of being in ministry, and I always love doing premarital counseling. You have this young couple that is so excited to be married for the first time, starry-eyed at one another. They both think they're angelic, so angelic. And, and yeah, she has like two sins that she deals with, and he might have three, but it doesn't matter. It was a perfect match made in heaven. And, and you're standing on the platform, and all the church is there, and the bride walks in. Have you guys experienced this? And the bride walks in, and what does everybody do? They stand up, and they look at the bride. And, oh, she is so beautiful. But you know what I'm thinking in my mind? She's a mess, you know. And so is he. They just don't know it yet, right? And the truth is, isn't it true of the church? The church is a beautiful mess. Beautiful mess. Charles Spurgeon, once there was a congregant that came up to Charles Spurgeon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, there Things about this church I do not like. And started rolling off a list. Not a good idea to do to the pastor, by the way. Don't recommend that. And uh, this guy's going on with a list of things. And he said, um, Spurgeon said, well, what do you expect? And he said, well, I want a close to perfect church. And he said, oh, dear friend, well, don't go to one or you'll ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> and the truth he's getting across is we are all messed up, aren't we? Yes. And we make up this church, Right. All of our brokenness, all of our sin, all meshed together in this melting pot called Gray Road Baptist Church. And what God is telling us this morning is that you are God's plan A for reaching the world. That, I mean, that'll blow your mind. Think about all of the other options God has. God could say, you know what? I'm going to send out angels to bring the gospel to all people. Forget you guys. You guys are real messed up. Half the time you obey me. And um, I'm going to send out angels. He could do that, couldn't he? 
Couldn't God just snap his omnipotent fingers in an instant and do all of the work himself? But, but instead, what does he do? God invites this beautiful mess of the church to be his plan A of reaching the world with the gospel. Here's the point. God uses redeemed sinners, the church, to advance the gospel to all people. In other words, if you won't do it, no one else is doing it. That's the point. So if you call Gray Road Baptist Church your home church, here are four things I want you to do in light of this message. Four things, real simple. Number one, look up. Look up. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been looking for fulfillment all around you. You're visiting today or you've been coming to this church for some time, but you've not placed your faith in Jesus. Today, God is calling you to look up to him by faith, to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus and embracing him by faith. But if you are a Christian and this is your home church, God is calling you this morning to be reminded this world is not your home. We have a small stay in this place called earth. And you're going to spend forever in heaven. And there's one thing you can't do in heaven. You know what it is? Evangelism. Oh, friend, you have a ton of lost people that God has brought into your life. And if you don't bring the gospel to them, who will? Look up and be reminded heaven is your home. Live today for what will last forever. That's the point. So first, look up. Secondly, kneel down. Kneel down. Perhaps you're here and God has burdened your heart with the names of people that don't know Jesus. Maybe God has burdened you over these past two Sundays with the reality that there are people all over our state, nation, and world that are going to die and be ushered into eternal condemnation. Whatever it may be, here's what God is calling us to do. Pray. Pray. Fervently, passionately, expectantly pray. More specifically, here's what I want you to do. I want to challenge you to take the next 30 days and pray for one person to come to Jesus. One person. Maybe there's someone that's been on your heart and mind during this sermon who you've thought, I just, I don't think God could ever reach this person. That's the person God's calling you to pray for. For the next 30 days, pray for that person by name. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, an unreached people group, whoever it might be, Whoever God has laid on your heart, remind yourself that Jesus can and then pray for their soul. Number three, reach out. Reach out. Jesus is graciously using the church to reach the world, which means, once again, you are God's plan A for reaching the world with the gospel. So let me ask, how do you need to reach out this week to the people around you with the hope of the gospel? Maybe it's that neighbor that you see every weekend, that co-worker that you sit across the hall from or that friend that you see every month? Who do you need to reach out to with the gospel of Christ? Who is it? Brothers and sisters, God is using the church to advance the glory of the gospel across all the world. But the question is, do you want to be a part of that? You know, God is like this divine father. For those of you that are dads with kids, and you're, you're working on a project, and you invite your son or your daughter to help you, but they're not really helping you, they're hindering you, but you're telling them they're helping you, right? 
and, and they're over there and they're kind of messing it up, but you're just so happy that they're helping you. You're inviting them into this joy. And in a, in a, in a much bigger way, in a grand way, God is doing the same thing with this church. He has this grand masterpiece, this grand master plan of reaching the world. He invites his kids to experience the joy and being a part of it. So will you shrink back or will you rise up and share the gospel with someone this week that God has laid on your heart? Four things God's calling us to do. Look up, kneel down, reach out, and finally, get ready. Ephesians 3, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, tells us that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or think. Think about that. Even the most grandiose miracle in your mind, God can blow that out of the water. You know what this means? It means when we look up to God as our hope, being reminded that heaven is our home, when we kneel down in prayer, when we reach out by faith to those around us, God moves. So, Gray Road Baptist Church, here's the question for you. Will you heed this call to be God's plan A for reaching the world by praying, by sharing the gospel with those around you and expecting God to move? What could God do if this church would rise up and take that call? he would do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or think. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for your kindness to us. We're so reminded through the life of the Apostle Paul that you are able to penetrate any depth of darkness that might exist in any human heart. You indeed, Lord Jesus, can redeem sinners. And we want to be a part of that. We want to open up our mouths and have our hearts filled with faith so that we might see sinners gloriously converted into saints. So I ask that for this body here in Indianapolis that you would pour out your spirit upon them, unite them together, do a work in our day that we wouldn't believe even if you told we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. It is